In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. You know, if we had more leaders who could drop into their hearts or feel their emotions or understood how to connect with teammates in a more authentic way, how might that change how we show up for each other? Maybe in a polarized, divisive world, it could create a type of leadership that's a bit more connected. Um, and that could be really useful right now. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I am Dr. Roger McFillin. Cal, back in the studio. Welcome, it's buddy. It's been a long time. It has been a while. Coaching. It's been inundating my life. We're glad to have you back. Thank and you. Sean is... He went back to Cali. Going back to You think Cali. he's going to stay? I don't know. He's just visiting. So he's in California on a little break, and we hope he's enjoying his time in California. But I w- am very grateful for our listening audience. We have recently gone as high as number 10 on the Apple charts for health and fitness, number two on the Apple charts for mental health. We've been getting great feedback. One of the things I'm asking If you are a fan of the Radically Genuine podcast, please, five stars. It's really helping. Five stars, any good comments. We appreciate it. If you're not a fan of the Radically Genuine podcast, please step away from the keyboard. Or just email Sean. (laughs) Email Sean with your complaints. Now, you can go to drrogermcfillin.com. Drmcfillin.com, I'm sorry. And we do. We're interested in that feedback, and we're interested in being able to create meaningful conversations with important people like today from all walks of life. But yes, we've been critical and we often take scientific literature and we're very critical of where we think society and culture is going, but we're also really interested in optimizing our lives, creating uh, emotional health and uh, amazing relationships, finding purpose and meaning and we are always honored to be able to meet authors and get to read their books. And today we have two of the three authors of the book, Mind Body Way. So I think today is the opportunity to enter into more critical conversations about day-to-day strategies and approaches to just improve our overall health and, and well-being. I first want to welcome Dr. Julie Bolak to the podcast. She's a registered clinical health and rehabilitation psychologist, consultant with a PhD in clinical psychology. Uh, She's a regular presenter at conferences across the globe. She's published research and peer-reviewed journals. She's passionate about optimizing well-being and leadership through embodiment. There's a lot for us to talk about with some terms that are probably new to our audience. I also want to welcome Casey Berglund. She's a popular podcaster, TEDx speaker, certified professional coach and embodiment guide, uh, founder of Worthy and Well, an online coaching and training company that helps clients live their deeper purpose without neglecting their body's wisdom. Uh, She's an accomplished teacher who helps founders change agents and guides become powerful embodied leaders who succeed at the transformational work they're meant to do. You can learn about her at uh, 
letourbodylead.com. We'll have all this information in the, in the show summary. Julian Casey, welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Thanks, Roger. Great to be here. So well, happy to be here. Excited to dig in with you. Well, I want to congratulate both of you on your project. It was a fascinating book that really got me thinking as a psychologist on various ways I can approach different clients. And I'm definitely going to bring that in today's podcast, but I'm really interested in the two of you, um, two of the three, unfortunately, we don't have the third partner here, but I'm interested in how you do write a book and collaborate with three authors, but a little bit more about your interest in this area and how you walk down this path to create this book. Mm. I'm going to start by saying that the book came together in a really kind of synchronistic and embodied way. Like each of us felt uh, connected in some way to the yes inside of our body when Courtney first proposed the idea of writing a book. Um, Courtney and I met in an ashram in India, and then Julie and Courtney had been friends for many, many years. So she proposed this project after doing a leadership talk or preparing for a leadership talk that she kind of uh, trashed and started from the beginning in a different way through like letting her body lead her to prepare the talk. So she was kind of inspired by how when she brought her body on board, it created a more meaningful and connected talk on leadership. And so from my end, she reached out to me on Facebook and shared the role that my TEDx talk played in that process and pitched this idea of a book and shared about a friend, a psychologist friend named Julie. And, um, and then we hopped on that first meeting and each of us felt a yes. It just felt like a really easy, connected, collaborative yes. And that kicked off our first meeting, really, and the start of the project. Yeah, and that, and that first meeting was in January 2020, so timely. And uh, from my, uh, my experience entering into the collaboration, I had just finished a second long Vipassana, so silent meditation retreat, where there was 10 days fully in silence and then 11th day reintegrating into some speaking and looking at people again. And right as I left that, I was on the phone with Courtney and she proposed this idea. And during the retreat, the word embodiment had come to me as my theme for the year. I tend to set annual themes. So I was like, whoa, okay, <laughs> there's something here. There's something here in terms of synchronous um, happenings that um, I, I just leaned into it. And that first call, as Casey mentioned, there was a just a deep connection amongst the three of us. And I, I could tell right from the beginning that we each had um, different strengths that would really complement and, and bring this book to life. And the writing process um, demonstrated that. There was a, a real flow throughout, like many people have asked us, you know, what about conflict and how did you manage writing together and all that time virtually. So we co-wrote together every week um, online. Um, and yeah, we had points of disagreement, but there, you know, throughout all of it, there was, um, you know, Casey, Casey's articulated this in previous discussions, a, a co-regulation amongst the three of us such that even 
in and, and when there were points of disagreement, we could really see what mattered to the other person and sense into that in a way that we could talk about the differences. And I think especially during these times of increased polarity, having that as a, a basis or a foundation for our past three years was a very grounding influence. I, I know for myself in my life, but I know um, Courtney and Casey have also spoken about that for them, that when there's like chaos around us, this is like a, a grounding um, foundation. So I have to ask the question, what it is like to be in a 10 day silent kind of retreat meditation environment? Cause that scares the hell out of me when I think about it. Like I, I love to meditate. I've been talking about this on the podcast, but boy, 20 to 30 minutes is something that really serves me well. 10 days. Tell me what that's like. It is um, and was and has been one of the most challenging experiences I've done. And I've done it more than once. <laughs> the first time was more challenging. Um, for me, more difficult than the silence was the sitting still. So much of my meditation or mindfulness practice tends to involve and incorporate movement practices. Uh, but in this Goenka Vipassana style retreat, it involved 11 or 12 hours of sitting completely still. Wow. Um, with one's eyes closed. What happens within you when that, what do you experience? Everything. Um, <laughs> everything. Um, literally, you can get to the place where you, you feel and sense every part of your body in a way that that you can't even really imagine without having had that experience there's also moments of um it can be like psychedelic type of like altered states of consciousness for sure um yeah and, and moments of excruciating pain <laughs> and discomfort and bliss you know, I remember moments of, there was just one little trail that I think if I walked slowly, it maybe took me 13 minutes to walk. And I can't remember how many times I did that during breaks. <laughs> um, and there were moments where I felt this deep and profound connection with the trees and, you know, different squirrels or animals that I would be seeing. And it's just really blissful moments also. That's some of the things that I've heard is <laughs> that it, that altered state of consciousness that leads you to some profound realizations about how we're all connected. 100%. Yeah. And then that provides a level of joy mm -hmm. and or bliss or euphoria that is kind of unmatched in our day-to-day -day lives. Absolutely. So what's it like then coming back to reality uh, and reconnecting after something like that? It can be challenging. So I remember that particular um was it that one no the the retreat i did before that a few years prior when i re-entered into life in ottawa um i had a friend that was on the male side of of the vipassana center and he's a long-standing vipassana retreater and uh we reintegrated into life in ottawa by spending some time in a provincial park i'm um, just walking in the trees talking together but just the two of us 
prior to like re-engaging in, in life. And then I think it, it ties really well into the theme of embodiment in that it's not about that state being the ideal state for all times, but knowing when is this quality of presence um, useful and when is it maybe more useful to be a little bit less embodied, <laughs> mm. a little bit more protected? And so when you go into different situations, say, you know, you go into shopping at Costco or some other big grocery store, it's maybe not helpful to be interacting with Costco in the way I might interact with the trees and nature in a more protected environment. Casey, why don't you try to do the best that you can to define embodiment for us and what that experience is like and then we can kind of build off of there i love that you <clears throat> set it up by saying do the best that you can to define embodiment you know we're writing this book on embodied leadership and bringing embodiment into leadership spaces and it's fascinating because there really isn't one cut and dry hard and fast definition the simplest one that i use is bringing awareness back into the body and allowing the body to reveal wisdom about how you're doing, about your next steps. But just like bringing awareness back into the body, sensing through the body. So I've mentioned on this podcast before that I'm on my own kind of spiritual evolution. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious to, to know what the two of you mean about that inner wisdom that we can tap into. Hmm. That's a, a deep question. We've, the, the three of us, uh, talked a lot about, both in the book and in speaking on other interviews and together, about how we come into this world, whatever your belief is in terms of how we arrive, <laughs> but as very embodied beings. And so much of, you know, culture and different life experiences lead us to become um, disconnected from this internal wisdom that we talk about as being central to embodiment. And it's a, it's a biologically driven, like, mechanism for a way of protecting ourselves. Um, so the spiritual side of us, um, it's about really connecting to what we might call our intuition or coming back to this deep inner knowing and using more of the data within us rather than looking so much for external sources of validation. I might add to that with my personal experience and journey through embodiment. Um, for me, my personal journey started with disconnecting from my body through an eating disorder, which is really an interesting context because, you know, food literally keeps us alive or it's part of what we need in a really human <laughs> embodied sense for, for nourishment. And yet 
eating can happen in such a disembodied way, in a way where I'm following rules that someone else made up outside of me. I'm looking for some sort of diet plan or someone to tell me which is better, the keto diet or, or a whole foods diet or plant-based. And what I realized personally and then also professionally first becoming a dietitian was that I actually replaced one set of external rules. Maybe those rules came from magazines or like, you know, sources of perhaps misinformation. I replaced that set of rules with uh, another set of rules that just happened to be more science-based, evidence-informed, rooted in like chemistry. And still, I was disconnected from my body. Still, my eating experience was how can I receive the most nourishment based on this scientific article, for example. And all of that has value. External wisdom has value. And for me, the healing of the eating disorder and then the profound shifts that I helped to facilitate with clients came from this coming back to the body and honoring its wisdom in its most primal ways. Uh, when a baby comes into the world, they root for milk when they're hungry or they cry. There's like an expression that isn't so put together that guides their experiences of being. And it's very embodied. And then we get smart and we get we go to university and we get our PhDs and we become doctors. I didn't become a doctor. I can't speak for the, the two of you. But like we get smart and intellectual. And I'm starting to realize how uh, I've used my intellect as a sword. I've used my intellect as arm armor to in some ways disconnect from a really primal sense inside of me. And so for me, that started to started to look like trusting my body around my eating decisions. Can I trust my hunger signals? Can I trust what my body is asking for? And can I be open to giving myself evidence that that works, that that actually helps me feel good? So it started very physical. And then for me, like yoga was part of the pathway towards deeper and deeper embodiment. And within the realm of studying yoga, I mentioned meeting Courtney in an ashram in India for our advanced training with like the really like at the root of where yoga is. Uh, I just really started to open up to the spiritual experience of that pathway that started very physical. And for me now, embodiment actually the act of using my definition from earlier bringing awareness back into the body attuning from the inside to sensations i feel like pulsing tingling tightness in my chest tension in my shoulders those are just examples of sensations or the practice of embodiment is attuning to those sensations what i've realized is when i slow down that process of attuning to even if it's a tingle in my pinky finger that awareness back in my body will tell me, you know, let's say I'm cold. It's like, okay, put a sweater on in a very basic sense, right? The body is saying, warm yourself up. Um, the deeper I go, the more I realize that embodiment is actually a practice to alter my state of consciousness, similar to what Julie said about the Vipassana. The act of bringing awareness back into the body, into sensation, creates an altered state that does open me up to spiritual awakenings. I'm, I'm not attached to that language either. We might call that something different. We might use neuroscience to describe it. But the act of coming back into my body allows me to open up to receiving visions, to hearing words, to having clear cognizance, a knowing that seems to come out of nowhere, to have a, a clear sentience. I'll get, when I hear truth, 
when truth will come through on this podcast, I'll get waves of chills down my arms. I might get instant tears at the backs of my eyes. And those are the most real moments for me is when my body is talking. And for me, it's deeply connected to spirituality. And of course, when you're writing a book that you want to be accessible to more people, you know, we had conversations about like, ooh, how much do we bring the spiritual part into this? Like, do we stick with just talking about polyvagal theory and nervous system regulation? Or, or do we like allow people to explore or experience how embodiment might also be a pathway toward deeper spiritual connection? And so I can only be myself and be authentic and say that embodiment for me takes me deeper and deeper and deeper into altered states and more awareness and a stronger connection to what I would call God, the universe source, divine consciousness, energy, all of it. Um, so that's the, the connection for me. And, and it's one of those things that you can't really go back once you see and once you know and once you practice once you tap into the body's wisdom it's harder to ignore i have less experiences of like oh shit i knew it i shouldn't have done that thing my intuition knew it all along i have less experiences of regretting decisions because i let that part of me lead and i'm proud of what that part leads me to so the book talks a lot about the understanding about the inner workings of the nervous system. And I did see you talk about the polyvagal theory, which I think links the nervous system to experiences, generally speaking. But how important is that link? How important is the link between the nervous system mm. and our experiences? Yep, yep. I think it's hugely important. Um, as a psychologist, so much of what I work on with clients and in my own life is around regulation of our experiences. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of information that, that we're receiving from outside cues and then from inside cues that, that let us know that something is either safe or not safe. Um, and so, you know, as like some concrete examples, over the past number of years with, you know, different cues of danger in, in our society around masks or virus or what have you, there's this real increasing agitation amongst everyone and you can, it's palpable, you can feel it literally in the air. And so, you know, and, and, and it's in the absence also of more cues of safety of like being able to see someone smile or being able to touch someone. Um, and so th this combination of factors that we're living in a time with greater um, or heightened sense of danger at the same time as less access to supports and things that help us regulate as a collective, not just as individuals. Um, I think it's very important to connect that to and ground that to a theory to help people understand the nervous system and what our needs are. These are not um, frivolous things. They're, they're biologically driven needs where, you know, I say to all of my clients that I work with, we're social beings. This idea that we can isolate or be alone and be well is a myth. So I'm fascinated by this idea of finding ways to become more embodied and then get connected to a higher level of consciousness, whether that's a divine wisdom. Mm -hmm. But one of the things as I'm 
on my own journey to try to implement this in my life as a therapist as well mm-hmm. is how you become much more connected to the emotional experience of the person in, in front of you. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to become disembodied and try to become intellectual. So like, so then I ask myself, all right, what, what's going on there? Do, do you think we have the ability to tap into like an energy frequency between people around us and experience that? Because I, I, I notice a lot of people who are, who would be deemed interpersonally sensitive, maybe they're artistic, they're, they feed and they feel the emotions and experience of others are prone to being pathologized in the modern psychiatric or medical based system with these diagnoses, which I just think are unjust in, in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think that if we reframed the entire experience and allowed them to maybe understand that this is a gift and they can harness that, that we can completely alter their reality and their, their quality of their life. I couldn't agree with you more, Roger. I have this um, memory coming to mind of giving a client the feedback that she's not the one with a personality disorder her her workplace is. Um, And so many people I've witnessed too have been given the message that you're too sensitive or um, you're too emotional or can't you just, you know, keep it together or calm down or whatever, you know, all these different messages. And very often, not always, you know, there's patho- you know, lots of pathologizing going on with men too, but this sort of overly sensitive thing tends to happen more with women or towards women. Um, this over-medicalization and pathologizing of women's emotional experiences. And I know you've had recent podcasts around the medicalization of menopause and, and all sorts of different issues pertinent to, to the female experience. Yeah, as soon as you started sharing or opening up the invitation for this topic, I felt this literally in my body, this like, oh, yes, thank you. Um, And you might start to notice just even in how Julie and I respond to the questions, like the different roles that we play in the book. Um, I would say that my role really has been like bringing storytelling and bringing the like making it personal into the book. And, and, you know, Julie's our like fact checker on the nervous system regulation stuff and, and the sciencey elements that are so important to creating a well-rounded um, piece of literature. And I just feel such a deep personal connection to that, uh, having been an emotional sensitive child who you know, now I'm realizing like, I could just sense bullshit. Like I was intuitive and I could feel through things and people couldn't lie to me, but yet it was almost my fault, like being too sensitive. And it's been a really interesting process to actually heal the, the ways in which I've shut down my sensitivity or used techniques to survive in that maybe family structure, community structure, and slowly coming to a place of understanding truly how to use those gifts, those empathic gifts, those sensitive gifts, those intuitive gifts. And when it comes to guiding others, it's easy for me to like get right to it with others as a coach because I can feel them, you know? And and also part of the learning journey has been how to not uh, experience burnout or do other people's work for them as a as a practitioner because of those sensitive gifts. 
And for me, um, definitely doing lots of therapy as one, <laughs> one mechanism for healing, but and also expanding beyond into alternative realms like uh, breath work, like yoga, like uh, intentional healing use of psychedelics. Um, and also more recently receiving a mentor who can speak to things that I experienced that I never learned about in school or that are hard to find mentorship around, like, uh, like lucid dreaming and like these downloads that come to me in meditation and the, the just sense that I have, sensitivity. Um, you know, I've had to learn how to clear my energy after walking out of a coffee shop because who knows who I'm engaging with on that somatic or nervous system level. So I think it's, and, and I feel so empowered now, you know, and, and even navigating different diagnoses or labels. Um, I'm exploring the like ADHD label, but then I'm also like, wait, why are so many women in their thirties like me getting diagnosed with ADHD and put on medication? Hmm, interesting, but also do I kind of want it? Would it make me it make it easier to survive in this in this world or be more focused? And also what am I turning off in order to turn on a different part of myself? So I I like deeply love that you're asking those questions and creating spaces to to bring that to the forefront because I think that there could be for someone a more empowering way forward um and i just see how there's both purpose and harm in certain diagnoses um and we have to be like mindful and conscious about exploring those realms all right casey we talked in the beginning we said all right there's no boundaries here let's just have a conversation right, i'm gonna i'm gonna let you know something i've been experimenting with because i'm having this profound spiritual journey that i'm on but i'm also like this cognitive behavioral psychologist and mm -hmm. so i'm like melding both worlds so i work i do work with people who i guess would be identified as chronically dysregulated i don't even like using mm -hmm. that word but let's just say like they have a difficult time regulating their emotions and so mm -hmm. i've i've realized in my experience that the more i try to intervene with that cognitively sometimes it just goes the wrong way like it's interpreted sometimes as invalidating and it just kind of creates a, a negative response so some of the things i've been doing have been silent mm -hmm. so meaning just like trying to communicate in my own mind and with my own body just like a loving kindness and compassion mm -hmm. and i see my clients start to regulate mm -hmm. and so yes. that that makes me then think that there are energy frequencies that we absorb and that we take on and can be experienced between two people. And we have these other op options for healing um, mm -hmm. in my field. I just want to get your, your thoughts on this because I feel like comfortable I can share this now, even though there's yeah. thousands of people listening. <laughs> we love this. Thank you for bringing yourself forward. Thank you for modeling uh, a radically genuine conversation and like bringing yourself to the table. <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I'm on my podcast or facilitating, sometimes I feel like I need in, I need to be in a bit of a protected space. Like I'm facilitating vulnerability for others, but also how can I keep myself out of it? And I think part of our training does that, right? Like the personal professional boundaries. And I've just noticed that the more I actually like lean into my humanness, it like actually creates 
better outcomes sometimes. So I just want to honor you for bringing that forth on your own podcast and actually say that when I'm, so part of what I do in my work beyond the book is um, training other facilitators, coaches, guides, healers to learn more skills to add to their toolbox to create deeper, more transformational change. And I think the thing that I bring to the table are these things that I've had to learn through experience that I didn't learn in school, right? On my own sort of like journey. And one of the one of the pieces that feels very true for me and that I often share in those teachings is if you just fill a space with unconditional love and drop into presence, people will change, they'll transform, they'll heal, they'll grow. And it takes a softening when I'm facilitating, it takes a softening of my own ego to actually do that, to actually prepare by doing an embodiment practice, by taking breaths, I'll do a specific clearing practice to get my energy grounded. And, you know, in my window of resilience from a nervous system perspective, because I know scientifically that my state, my nervous system state is felt even via Zoom, even when someone's on the other side of the world. And so when I am aware and conscious of my nervous system state, and when I set an intention for loving presence, and I trust that I am not doing the work here, I am a vessel for this work, and this is about my client. In other words, Casey, get the fuck out of the way and just love your people, and they will change. And sometimes I think the more that I actually don't use my tools, the the intellectual ones, don't think about what particular skill would be useful here. Like there's an embodiment of those tools. They're in me. I've used them a lot. So I can trust that I can pull upon them when they're necessary. But first and foremost, the foundation of all of my work, and I think it would serve many practitioners to actually really drop into this, is be present and fill a space with unconditional love. And let that higher consciousness, and I'm going to call it that, come through to do its work. And I would say it's helpful to have altered consciousness experiences, either through meditation or breath work, using your own breath to have a psychedelic-like experience, to um, feel for yourself the, the ways in which there are more ways to work with people other than using our minds. And it's, I don't think it's that fluffy that I can be conscious of the tone of my voice, the length of my silence, my breath. These are unspoken nervous system co-regulation tools. And they're extraordinarily effective when, when hanging out with friends, when having a hard conversation with your partner, when dropping in with, clients and supporting them and working through something that's challenging. Um, One of the pillars of our book is trust and integration. And there's this real building of trust that is part of the embodiment path and part of embodiment, embodied leadership, trust of self and the effectiveness of those personal regulation techniques. And also trust that that embodiment is doing a lot of the work for you. The co-regulation is doing a lot of work in the context of working with teams or um, navigating conflict in the workplace or helping clients. So again, 
thanks for bringing yourself forward because you, you're pulling the passion out of me. Yeah, I'm going to come back to you with follow-up, but I do want to bring Julie in, into this conversation. So Julie, are you aware of acceptance and commitment therapy? Act? I, I certainly am. It's uh, one of the psychotherapy approaches that I draw a lot from. Me as well. So yeah. my, my center here is, a th- you know, we call ourselves third wave yeah. behavioral therapy. We have dialectical behavior therapy and ACT treatment center. And you speak to experiential avoidance mm-hmm. in the book. And I think this is a great opportunity to talk about how experiential avoidance might maintain a lot of problems in living. If you can kind of talk about that and in ways that your embodiment can actually target that. Yeah. I think experiential avoidance is at the root of most of our, our issues, in fact, uh, what what that term really gets at is disembodiment. It's the six, it's the the avoiding or the um, pushing away of whatever's showing up, um, and which is why the first pillar of our book, the mind body way, is on acceptance, acceptance and compassion. Um, it's not just seeing clearly what is, but how can we face it in a way that's that's workable and I love that about act or acceptance and commitment therapy or training and that it's not about there being a right way or a wrong way or a good way or a bad way it's about workability like how is this functioning in your life how does this work and in the short term many we all do you know we all use avoidance uh, as a strategy and sometimes it's a it's really workable I'll often give the example to clients, you know, one day I was running, um, doing some trail running in, in a park and there was a black bear that happened to be there all of a sudden, like right in front of me. And so I turned around and ran the other way, you know, that's not a, a way of, you know, continuing with my valued action of going out for a run on the trail. I was like, get me out of here. I'm not, not afraid of the bear, but I wanted to respect and give, give the bear its, its place. Um, but that's a very workable avoidance move. So many of us get caught up in these cycles of using some sort of substance, whether it be cannabis or alcohol or, or some other substance, shopping, um, working long hours, exercising excessively, um, binge watching Netflix, whatever popular move <laughs> to disconnect from our own experiences. And what that doesn't facilitate is what, what you learn when you sit for 11 days in a silent meditation retreat, and that is everything comes and goes. Everything is impermanent. And even the most intense experience of, um, you know, waves of grief or sadness or anger or agitation or fear, anxiety, whatever might show up or thoughts of like, you know, what's the point of life or whatever, you know, intense, difficult thought or internal experience that shows up, it comes and goes. And when we push it to leave more quickly or somehow be hidden, it actually, it's like this idea of, you know, if I were to tell you, Cal and, and Roger and Case, you know, don't think about a blue elephant. You know, what would you be thinking about for the rest of, you know, I could probably run into you and in 10 years and go, what did I tell you not to think about? And you'd be like, oh, that damn blue elephant. And so that's the problem with the control agenda. But as human beings, we 
we want to be able to control and have certainty. You know, we, we struggle more with an uncertain cancer diagnosis than a certain cancer diagnosis in many respects because we crave um, certainty. And so this idea of facing the discomfort, of being with, but not just being with in sort of a, um, a miserable way, but how can we face it in a different way? So when I work with clients, I'm often working with them on learning skills for how to be with the experiences differently. How can you notice and acknowledge whatever suffering that you're that's showing up for you and respond with kindness rather than going, oh, I'm such an idiot, I'm anxious again, or I messed that up or whatever. How can I, okay, yeah, you know, maybe I could have done better there. You know, I, I made, you know, uh, I, I made a move that I wish I hadn't have made and I'm going to go back and, and do what I can to, to fix or make amends. And I'm human. There, there's a paradoxical effect with uh, <laughs> experiential avoidance. The more we try to avoid what we're feeling it's almost like the more intensely it's going to control our life uh kel's use of experiential avoidance is miller light as he's told us in previous absolutely <laughs> <laughs> but it, i mean that's that's the idea it's like we're trying to escape what we're feeling and then we give it a whole lot of power and mm-hmm. before we know it we're impulsively reacting on that internal state without even having awareness of it huge power yeah. that and we avoid the beauty of life too. Mm-hmm. Like with not facing the so-called negative or so-called difficult stuff, we also aren't giving ourselves the possibility for feeling these amazing feelings of love and connection and joy. And so much of our culture is about reaching for quick fixes to numb and they're really workable, right, in the short term, but they come at such a huge cost. So it's like, okay, if you, if you, if you really can't handle it, I often use like a scale of one to 10 with clients of like, it's really intense, a seven plus on that scale of one to 10 with 10 being total overwhelm. Sure, you know, do something, you know, hopefully non-harming or less harming to avoid or numb yourself out for a moment. But when you're in that medium range of intensity of experience, that's the time to learn how to face it. Otherwise, you're missing life. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things that are definitely communicated in your book is not only are you missing out on an important piece of life, but you're also missing out on potentially critical wisdom and a, a part of you that is kind of being disconnected and impacting your ability to influence people and lead Um, So I I am curious about that before I get to some of the spiritual stuff again, Casey, but you got, you chose to focus on leadership. Um, um, This had, this is such, so widely applicable, right? I mean, I I could have an entire conversation today just on the treatment of PTSD, you know, trauma survivors Mm -hmm. and how important and necessary this is a key component of an effective treatment, but you chose a different route. You chose to focus on leaders. Tell me why. Yeah, well, we felt that in the current resources out in the world, from an embodiment perspective, a lot of the focus in books coming out is on healing trauma 
using somatic practices to understand trauma in a different way. And many of the big players in the game, I'm thinking like Gabor Mate, for example, like people, it's, it's kind of like going in deep. And we felt like there needed to be a more accessible entry point into embodiment. And at least in, in my work, I see that people can lead only as far as their trauma lets them in a way, or only as far as their bodies limit them. And there's an application, you know, bringing embodiment into leadership spaces. We are speaking to a more well person, although that's subjective, I suppose. And we just felt that, you know, we were witnessing in the world what's normalized in leadership spaces is kind of a low bar. And bringing embodiment, <laughs> say more. Sorry, Case, I didn't mean to drop. That's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought you said something like that. Um, it's a low bar. It's a really low bar. And if we bring what we knew about embodiment and, you know, really early on in the process, these six pillars came to us and they became this framework for really applying the wisdom of embodiment into a space where we feel like it could make an impact. You know, if we had more leaders who could drop into their hearts or feel their emotions or understood how to connect with teammates in a more authentic way, how might that change how we show up for each other? Maybe in a polarized, divisive world, it could create a type of leadership that's a bit more connected. Um, and that could be really useful right now. And little did we know when we first sort of like pitched that idea to each other that we would see firsthand, like through 2020, 2021, 2022, we're in 2023 right now. It felt like as we lived through those years, it became even more important for leaders to have these types of skills and awarenesses to elevate their consciousness so that they're not just heads on sticks walking around with this wisdom. I'm, I'm realizing it's a podcast, so I'm pointing to my head, this heady wisdom, and actually embracing the wholeness of body consciousness as well to just be more thoughtful and more aware in how we lead. Just to jump off of that for one moment, when, you know, when I think about everyone that I hear talking about work and their work lives, when someone has a leader in their life in a work context that's leading well, they're happy. They're satisfied with their work. They don't want to change jobs. They, they're not you know, losing sleep at night. But more and more, I'm hearing the opposite. I'm hearing people who are dealing with micromanagers or um, toxic workplaces, bullying, all sorts of really horrific leadership scenarios. And that is not an embodied leader. So this is very aspirational. My, my concern is sometimes the personality structure of somebody who is seeks out positions of high authority in government and industry. Um, I think there's some fairly good research in our field, Julie, that they tend to have more sociopathic tendencies. And we certainly see how that has influenced society. Um, I do believe from a spiritual perspective that um, 
you know, we could raise the collective consciousness of, you know, if there's really good people who care about each other and do things for the best of society that we can, you know, kind of advance our, our, our culture, but we're at a bad spot, aren't we? You know, and I think we can blame it a lot on our leaders. I, I agree 100%. And it's not every, you know, it's not the, the sociopathic leader is not going to benefit from our book. I don't believe um, they're not going to pick it up. They're not going to pick it up. And even if someone pushed it down their throat, they, they, they wouldn't benefit. From well, why do you think that is that they just, they wouldn't listen at all. Even if they were losing their, you know, they, they realized they were losing the people under them that they have to have some sort of realization. You don't think they would listen at all. Not in a way that would embody the, the, the essence of, of our work. No. Um, and if it if it were if they would take you know tips away from the book, it would be more to manipulate um, mm. the people working with or under them. But you know, I don't believe that every leader or even most leaders out there is sociopathic. You know, they might have certain tendencies towards more narcissistic or entitled ways of of showing up. Um, but that that's workable and i think with most leaders um they're they're doing they're they're doing the best they can not having necessarily the training or the support um to to show up differently in their workplaces and so much of it's a systemic issue it's the workplace structures it's not the individuals themselves Yeah, I want to go back to Casey, okay? Because so, oh. <laughs> oh, because she's, I, I feel like maybe there's a language I'm learning that she's already learned, and I want to kind of tap <laughs> tap into this a little bit. So it's around this idea of like frequency and and energy. Mm-hmm. Um, do you believe that there are people amongst us who have been able to tap into? a higher frequency or a different frequency that connects with a, a wisdom and a divine spiritual connection. And they have skills and abilities that maybe we have, maybe all people have the ability to kind of evolve that way, but most people don't. But do you think there are people walk, walk amongst us who have these really advanced kind of talents or skills? Yes. Okay. I would say yes to Roger. Okay, good. Because when I say these things, some people think I'm crazy. I was on a Canadian podcast last night where I was talking about my spiritual kind of connections. And I'm, you know, a little bit afraid of saying kind of these things for the for the first time. But like, I've met. I I was just going to say, Roger, I think you're one of them. I think you might be one of them. I think Julie might be one of them. I think I might be one of them. I think Kel might. I, I we haven't had an as much interaction but i don't think it's unusual for us to be able to access a different part of our awareness so i i agree like i'm intuitive i i I think i'm intuitive and i think i can enhance my ability to harness my my intuition and it first started with an awareness that that's what i'm feeling so if i wasn't ever aware of of the feeling. So I met with a, a, a medium, a very special woman. I mean, she's amazing. Mm-hmm. And she told me that 
I have to be careful. I take on a lot of the energy of my clients and that I have to use these techniques and this approach to be able to manage my work because I will consume that energy. She also said there's other things I, you know, I can do around being able to protect myself and I try to do those things. But the more that I become aware of my emotional state, my physical sensations, what's going on with my body, I do experience, Casey, exactly what you said, the answers come to me. So get, of course. I found a way to get out of my own way. Mm-hmm. And I think the, what needs to happen is we have to teach people to be able to do that. And I feel like I've been able to catch on to other frequencies. Like, so maybe that's the only way, maybe we're talking here today only because of that, right? Like I would have never been able to connect with the two of you unless we're on a similar frequency. <laughs> And so a number of things are happening in my life that are unexplainable, but mm-hmm. I think it's because I tapped into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I just want to say that as you speak, I, I, you know, same wavelength. It's, it's real. I feel in my body as you speak the, what I called earlier, the truth tears, these like tears at the backs of my eyes. I feel my heart space connect. It's like, oh, thank you. Like, thank you for your vulnerability. And it's like, now we go deeper. Now we get to enjoy this frequency that we ride. And I also find myself thinking, what if every therapist had those extra tools? Like, it's not that we need to necessarily ditch one set of tools for a whole new set of tools, but what if you, Roger, get to integrate what you learned from the medium with what you learned through your PhD, with what you've learned through your body's wisdom in experience showing up. It's like, of course, you take in other people. That, that makes me think you're probably really good at what you do. That same gift is probably part of why you have a podcast called Radically Genuine. It's probably part of the the frequency of creating spaces that maybe are more open to talk about ideas that aren't mainstream you know i think this is a sign of an elevated consciousness and um in my experience like my life is a series of synchronicities for lack of a better word and i actually am not attached to labels but like literally yesterday i was doing some work at a coffee shop and there were two like beautiful, empowered, integrated men having a beautiful conversation about their lives in a real way. And we like dropped into a conversation together and it was of a certain frequency. And in that moment, we were all present. We were all in a non-judgmental awareness. And we decided to go out later the evening in the evening and just like have this conversation or this connection. And through those two men, I also received like really important wisdom that were answers to some of the questions I've been asking. And this is just my meaning making system. I'm actually not attached to anyone being like, oh, you know, I don't actually care about other people's judgment. It's like, it's like, this is true for me. And you can't explain these, like Julie and I and met in Costa Rica, um, And there was like a series of events that led to that and us finding kind of the perfect thing at the perfect time. And so on the, on the advanced, let's call it advanced, I don't know, embodiment, such a cyclical journey. We're like beginners and then we're advanced and then we're beginners again. But I think the benefit of this deeper work is you open up to different ways of 
knowing and being and ultimately like living life. Think about how heavy trauma feels in the body. For me, doing like deep trauma healing, it's it's created this like tension, like true discomfort. And it feels like the more that gets healed, I literally get to be lighter. Life literally gets to be easier. I meet people. I'm no longer attracting uh, men in my dating life that I feel like I need to fix or heal. They're just like meeting me on a level because I am that, you know? And it's something that to me is a bit magical. Like, how does this actually work? Like, even these therapeutic philosophies like attachment theory and you know like there's there's these ways that we understand growth and evolution and i find that there's still an unexplainable magic underneath Mm -hmm. of what happens when we heal and elevate our consciousness frequency become lighter in our energy field we flow through life in a lighter way or at least the default is lighter Julie, I have a question for you. Now the floodgates are open. So, all right, here is a, maybe maybe this has occurred to you when you're deep in meditation and you have that kind of psychedelic experience. One of the thing, one of the experiences that I've learned when this has happened to me are one, there are no coincidences. Mm-hmm. Our souls are on a journey mm-hmm. and everything that happens to us is to benefit us. Yes. Okay. So are we in agreement there? Uh, okay. Yeah. So I am trying to find ways to integrate that into my clinical work. Mm. The hardest thing for me is when really bad things have happened to somebody. And then for me to somehow frame it that everything can serve us. Yeah. And I know that there's, there are people that are listening um, that are our patients or have, you know, gone through traumatic experiences. I also know that there's people who are listening right now who are like Christian oriented and they might be just using different language, like the Holy spirit or a number of number of other things or, um, that they connect with. But clinically, how, how are we able to get people to understand that even horrible things that have happened can serve them without it coming across as like invalidating and, and, not compassionate or, or just flat out just making people angry. Yeah. Two, two themes. That's a, such an important question and reflection, Roger. Two themes that come to my mind are one is to both come at it ourselves as the therapist or the guide or the facilitator with curiosity and to also help the other person explore their experiences and life circumstances with curiosity and to really follow the, follow the client, to not um, jump ahead, to not put, you know, a label or even, you know, something I used to do years ago and I've been very intentional at not doing is not even naming the emotion I'm sensing because that's my experience, not the other person's experience. So instead of saying, oh, it seems like, you know, you're, you're, you're anxious right now. No, I like what, what's showing up for you? Or what are you feeling right now? Rather than imposing my judgment, which, which is mine, it's my experience, it's not theirs, asking the person and helping them get curious and learn to tap into their own wisdom. 
And what I've noticed as I've been much more intentional about about doing the work in this fashion is clients will come to this answer themselves. You know, so I I know I'm thinking of a couple different clients who have some similar experiences with terminal diagnoses and this idea of magic and the possibility of magic. And yes, you know, there might be this terminal diagnosis. Yeah, how can we even hold that lightly? But just because, you know, someone with some degree or credentials that mean something to our society has told you or a family member that you're going to die in three months, that maybe there's something to just even holding that lightly. To, and, and by lightly, I mean not buying it as necessarily 100% for sure. Mm. And what what does that do in the moment for us to just consider it as one of many options? Yes, maybe that will be. I, before I jumped on with the two of you, I was on another podcast, um, a popular one, Ali Beth Stuckey, relatable podcast, and she's got a large following. Um, and I was talking about the power of the placebo effect mm-hmm. and that ha- we haven't tapped into and harnessed the power of that mind body healing connection uh, as we speak here today there's a recent study that just came out on um, opiates for pain versus a placebo for pain for pain and the placebo group actually outperformed the opiate group which awesome. is fascinating and uh, some other studies and i say this on a day where my son is getting arthroscopic surgery on his knee that they did a a, a clinical trial where they had uh, a group of individuals who had a specific knee injury and it was unclear whether that arthroscopic knee surgery yielded any results in an improvement like lessening pain and improving mobility so what they did is they did the placebo controlled trial so they would actually have a group they wheeled them into the OR did the entire surgery then they have another group that they did the same thing wheeled them into the OR gave them anesthesia woke them up and they thought their did an incision on their knee, but didn't do anything. They actually thought they had the surgery. And then you see the group that didn't get the surgery performs just as well as far as pain and improved mobility. So there's this power of the mind in being able to heal the body that we have not in any way been able to tap into because of the limitations of the allopathic medical Mm -hmm. system that we all live in in western medicine mm-hmm. yes so so under tapped into so much potential we have literally within ourselves and not just as individuals but in community right we often use the language of we have it all within ourselves and you know to some extent that might be true ish and yet we we have this in community so much healing happens in groups and I know both Casey and I have had different experiences of, of healing experiences and groups and just the power of, of that happening in a community. And, and you see that in like prayer groups or the power of prayer groups and how that can have yeah. such a, a powerful impact on, on somebody. It's just, it's amazing when we begin to 
let down our, our guard and open up our minds and our hearts and consider all the possibilities, well, then we can start advancing. But there is like, there's a fear to have these conversations. Like I'm just now willing to go behind the microphone and start saying these things because I'm afraid of being judged. Like even to like one of my best friends, Kelly, like I'm afraid to say it cause he's gonna look at me like I'm, I'm crazy. I'm judging him right now, but <laughs> now listen, there, that brings, so I'm listening to all of you talk. And one of the things I think, I'm not sure who said it, but I listened to your podcast and I, I took one of these in order to get to the point that you guys obviously are all at, it's as somebody on the podcast said, it's basically like people are imposters. In other words, they're not able to get to this point. What he just said is this fear of judgment, this fear of almost like fear is this overriding thing that causes people to not want to believe that the mind is that powerful. And one of you said it, I'm not sure which one, but you said, it's basically people feel like you're living your life as an imposter because you're not allowing yourselves to get out. Is that, is that pretty accurate? Yeah. I mean that it aligns and it's interesting. So I'm just going to bring it back to frequency, you know, like I sought out a mentor who is unlike anyone I've ever met because I wasn't getting what I needed from all of the tools that I was using. And she would say that fear will plummet your energy field faster than anything. Mm -hmm. So if we're all vibing up here and fear enters this space, that person who's experiencing the fear, their frequency will literally drop immediately. And then because we're co-regulating, it will fill the space. So it's like, it's that powerful. And speaking of the power of the mind, like, of course, we're not using our minds to their fullest capacity or our mind body because it's one. Um, but it's like that definitely ties into it. And, you know, Roger, I'm thinking about how when I was a dietitian and I was young, like I started my business when I was 25 and learned so much through that degree, science degree, and then, you know, found sort of yoga and mindfulness. And I was like a bridge between worlds is what I felt. I, and I still am. I still want to bring all these other modalities together with what we know in science. And I remember really early on in my business, I was like working with clients who had eating disorders or were chronic dieters. And, and I'm a dietitian. And I was taught to you know, calculate their nutrition requirements and offer meal plans and all of that. And, and so soon into it, I was like, this is not what these people need. And I started to, in secret, behind the scenes, in the one-on-one -on -one moments, with the consent of my clients, teach them what I'd learned through yoga and mindfulness and bring that part into our nutrition counseling. And it started to show me like, ooh, this is actually more effective for getting to the root of some of these eating issues. And the whole time I did it, I had this lingering fear that I was going to get my license take, taken away, that the College of Dietitians of Alberta was going to say to me, find out, find me out and, you know, take my license away because I'm not practicing evidence-based nutrition. And this is me bringing meditation two people who are exploring emotional connections to food. So when I think about it, it's like, okay, before we had all this research on mindfulness and meditation and before like Google and Apple and like the biggest, you know, CEOs in the world started meditating, it was an Eastern philosophy that was ancient in India. And 
people like me, I, I mean, it's like I still had this implanted belief. There's lots of research coming out at that time that, that it was effective. But I still felt like it's, I'm going to get my license taken away because it's not what I was taught. I'm not following the rules, you know? And I, and I also was working digitally when most of my colleagues were working in person. And I remember I was such a type A perfectionistic dietitian, like wanting to do it all right. And I called the college and I was like, so I really want to impact more people by doing this online. And here's what I'm thinking. And we had this whole conversation. And at the end of it, they were like, you know, Casey, maybe you could support us with updating our guidelines. And I was like, wait a minute. I'm over here terrified that I'm going to get found out for doing transformational work with my clients and using my skills beyond just what I learned as a dietitian. And I'm like terrified and hiding. And you're telling me that actually like I could help you evolve. And then all these dietitians started like reaching out and being like, what are you doing? Can you teach us how to bring mindfulness to our nutrition practice? You know? And it was like, why the fear? You know? And I feel like this, there's of course this vulnerability and opening up this space to, to sharing about personal experiences. And sometimes I wonder how you could be the leader that your clients are looking for. I wonder how many people are just waiting for more to be brought into the practice. And I just think it's fascinating in my experience, every time I've like leaned into moving through that fear professionally and owning say my spiritual experiences, the mystical awakenings that I've had. And it's, it's only attracted more intrigue and interest um, and I think part of it is because it's integrated, because it's in, it's embodied in me. You can't fuck with the truth. I'm not teaching anything I haven't actually like really worked through my own system first. I'm not just learning some teaching from this mentor and then spitting it out to my clients. I'm pulling it in. I'm speaking from the eye. I'm also sharing, you know, I was on the news as a dietitian every month and I would share like from the ancient practice of Ayurveda, here's a philosophy. What do you think? This is different from nutrition science. But sometimes I think that there's a way when sharing from that place of uh, what's behind this wisdom that actually helps open the doors. Yeah, I think there's so much truth there, Case. And I'm just putting myself in the shoes of a listener who might be going, oh, no, no, but in my context... No, no, the fear is actually justified. <laughs> so to, to tell a bit of a counter story, when I was working for an institution, bringing yoga into practice with patients, I got told in very explicit orders, you shall not do anything with yoga with your patients anymore. And so the, the patients were then back to doing yoga with a YouTube video. Yeah, I think you bring up some really good points about uh, the rules that are developed and uh, I, what I call is the, the illusion of evidence-based practice or the, the illusion of consensus in a lot of this area. It's really just, um, you know, financially driven mm -hmm. guidelines to serve an industry. They get to choose what is, what is evidence-based, unfortunately. Um, and I certainly fell into that uh, as, a, as a psychologist. Um, and not that I don't say that there's value. I think there's value into measuring progress, but that's with each individual person and doing that in kind of a, an empirical collaborative way. 
But um, I'm just curious, have either one of you ever read or been exposed to A Course in Miracles? I have not. I haven't uh, gone down a deep dive, though I'm aware and have, have heard lots of people reference it, so have a bit of a sense of, of A Course in Miracles. Yeah, I mean, Casey, you speak a lot. Um, it's, I mean, it, it took seven years to, to write, and the person was channeling it, and it's, uh, there's a depth to it that you, know, you can only do a little bit at a time. But bottom line is, like, you, you were talking to things about truth and you know, the search for truth and seeking out truth and really the ego, what gets in the way, and the ego is connected to fear. And I, I do think that there is a, at least one of our li- life challenges is to transcend fear um, in order to live truth in the manner in which you live truth. And I think, uh, you know, what you're, what we're all trying to do is we're, we're, we're trying to have some positive influence on the lives of others around us. We have a mission. There's something that we're here for. And the only way I think we can really get connected to it is if we transcend that fear and we're willing to be able to speak that truth that we're, we're referring to. And I, I think your book in the, in the six pillars is a way to actually experience it and to be able to connect with it and, and achieve to it. It's the paradoxical thing about a lot of this is that we're so cerebral and we want to use our mind, which is another word can be ego. You know, we use our mind to try to, you know, find all the answers and that just tends to leave us like missing and empty and stressed. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's just, finding that way to quiet the mind and then to connect. And then there, there are answers that are provided to us that um, I can only say that they are so much more intricate and there's so much depth to it that leaves you sometimes understanding, you know, why you did things the way you did in the past or how everything you know, was bringing you to a particular moment. And I've tried to talk about this with Kel and Sean on, on the podcast, especially about the future of the podcast, is that... Manifest. I've talked about that, like manifesting things into reality. I do believe we're creators of our own reality. So, you know, if radically genuine means we're going to try to seek out truth and, and honor that truth, then we have to be absolutely willing to stand outside what is mainstream and to catch the catch the flack for that, like or be on the firing line, and I know I've been on the firing line lately for a number of things, just because of my willingness to speak out against psychiatric drugs. I was I'm willing to I'm interested in getting your thoughts on this. I'm concerned about where we're going in society because I agree with the both of you in the value of our body and our emotions and our experience. If we say emotions are energy in motion, that's another way to kind of conceptualize all this. And I think they're powerful indicators of messages in our life. And we need to be able to utilize them to make changes, even if they're scary. And the idea of thinking about emotions as symptoms to be drugged is absolutely frightening to me. And that we're doing it for younger and younger people. I, uh, I just feel so disheartened and I'll do everything in my power to be able to speak against, against that ideology. Yeah, I too am concerned and also hopeful. Uh, I see, I see shifts and sparks of something different happening that gives me a sense of optimism about 
what's possible, um, whether it be with the psychedelic movement um, or just people's increasing interest in talking about or connecting to the theme of spirituality, um, to people, you know, people's increased realization of our disconnect from nature and how important it is to get back to nature, whether it be practices such as gardening or spending time walking or being outside. Um, yeah. Grounding to the earth. Grounding, yes, grounding. Uh, I'm actually standing on a grounding mat right now. <laughs> well, uh, listen, we've held you for over an hour here. We've had a, a fascinating conversation. I feel like we're going to have to get in touch again in the future to talk about extend this conversation to different topic areas. But um, before we conclude today, where can people find you, buy the book, get in touch with you, listen to you? Everything related to the book is on our site, mindbodywaybook.com, including uh, links to where the book can be purchased, though it's, it's everywhere in the digital realms. So um, just finding the, the retailer that's aligned with your value system is probably the best way to go about getting the book in your hands. Um, unless you're physically nearby Calgary, Ottawa, or in New Brunswick, where our co-author Courtney is, um, we, I think just by way of the book being about embodiment, we are loving really grassroots ways of sharing the book. Like, I'm kind of like, let's go for a coffee and we'll talk about the book. Like, let's share it in these really beautiful, connected ways. So, um, mindbodywaybook.com is where you can find everything about the book and then i am at letyourbodylead.com and have a podcast called the purpose map i'm feeling that there could be an extended conversation over there as well because i'm enjoying this so much and and julie why don't you share where people can find you yeah, and I can be found at drjuliebolak.com or on social media at drbolak. Um, happy for anyone to reach out for whom this this topic has resonated. And I would love to come back and speak to to you, Roger and Kel. Yeah, I think um, for those who go out and purchase the book, you know, we could have gotten into practical strategies to be able to achieve this state. And listen, it's not easy. I'm not going to communicate to people that becoming more embodied is actual actually easy there's a commitment process to it and sometimes there's a lot of discomfort in that process but um certainly valuable and if you buy the book you'll be able to learn some of those practical strategies mixed with you know very interesting stories and sound science and that's what i liked about the book it had that nice balance casey julie Thank you so much. It was such a fascinating yeah, conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we really appreciate it. It was absolutely radically genuine, and I wish you to the best of luck with the book and moving forward. We Thank wish you. you the best with uh, the Radically Genuine podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. 
If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.